0: My guest today is Danny here. Danny's been a close friend of mine for 20 years. He's had an extensive career in law enforcement. We met when I was a young attorney working at a courthouse and he was a sheriff's officer there. Danny's story is interesting, not just because of his extensive law enforcement career, the details of which he shares openly, but also because he explains his experience with alcohol and drug addiction something he managed to hide very well from friends and family for decades. Danny also recently pled guilty to healthcare fraud. He explains the events that led up to that. This is the story of his life, and he wanted to share it with you. Most importantly, if you or someone you love is suffering with addiction, there is hope. Danny's story is proof of
1: that. I hope you enjoy this interview.
2: So welcome, Danny.
1: Thank you so much. I haven't seen you in forever.
2: It's been a while. You know, I we been talked been on the phone. Night. I have to ask you, what is that hanging from your microphone? Is that Superman?
1: Oh, yeah, that is Superman. That's uh that was a gift. Yeah. I love that. Is that
2: yeah. your decoration?
1: That's my decoration. It's not quite as uh, extravagant as yours, but
2: what? What's my decoration?
1: Well, I mean, all your pictures in the background. You got a really yeah. nice setup.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's it's mm-hmm. curated. If you looked to that side, you'd see a big mess <laughs> over there. Yeah. So it's strategically hidden. Yep. All right. So you were a sheriff's officer. I was a law clerk. That's how it all began. Our friendship. Yeah. And we did lose touch though for a while when I left, and and so so for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, I wasn't really around a lot. I wish I was, but yeah. lost touch for a bit. So for people that don't know you, give us a little, give us your resume because you have been in law enforcement in various capacities.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, before I even get into that, do you remember where we had our real first conversation?
2: We were at a bar. Was it Nova Terra It was
1: Nova Terra. Yeah. Good memory.
2: Yeah. Did I give away any secrets then?
1: I don't know. I think we started there. Started our, uh, like a brother-sister relationship. I
2: want to call it a bromance, but I'm not yeah. a pro.
1: No. So yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I started my law enforcement career in 1997. It was uh, at the corrections facility on Route 130, North Brunswick.
2: Also That's known what, as the workhouse.
1: The workhouse, yeah. Do you know why it was called the workhouse? No. Well, because they used to actually farm the food over there. Right out in the front. Now there's soccer fields and everything and buildings. But yeah, they used to farm their own food right there. I believe they hey, being did. who?
2: the inmates. Yeah, yeah. Really? I didn't yep. know that.
1: Yeah. Well, and they I'm also, kidding. I believe, they used to do license plates there for the state. They used to make the license plates there.
2: Oh, that's so funny. So that's where that comes from. I didn't know if it was actually true that inmates did that.
1: Yeah. No, I, I believe it was there. I'm not 100 percent sure. But yeah, I mean, I started out at the workhouse in 1997. Uh, Then 2000, I went over to the Middlesex County Sheriff's Department and then uh, finished out over at North Brunswick Police Department in uh, 2005.
2: Did you always want to be in law enforcement?
1: You know, it's so funny that you say that because I used to try to convince myself that I wanted to, but, uh, you know. Uh, When I was just getting married, uh, my father-in-law at the time, he just told me, like, why don't you take the civil service test? And I did. I did pretty well. Obviously, I got through, you know, three wonderful careers, basically, from the jail, the sheriff's department, and the police department. I mean, it's all under law enforcement, but there are three different components to the actual job itself. So like what? Well, you got the police department. If we can go reverse, I mean, you know, that's where we're making contact with people on the streets. They go to the courthouse. That's where, you know, I saw the court cases as a sheriff's officer. And then of course to jail. That's where they end up if the uh will end up there.
2: So that those were very different experiences though, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't really like the jail too much. That was, that's a really tough job. I give the guys that make a career out of it so much respect. I mean, it really is. It's very tough to, it's, I mean, it's just a very tough job. It's. Um, well, you know,
2: I know as i I'll call myself a civilian. It, I, one thing I know about corrections is they don't have firearms. The, no, the- officers, right.
1: No, I mean, when I was there, the only thing they had on them was basically keys, a radio, and the guys, which at that time we called the goon squad, you know, the guys that were in the hallway, they had, um, you know, pepper spray, that, you know, the, the pepper spray that was on them, but that was it. Other than that.
2: So when uh, you went into corrections, how old were you?
1: 21. That's a baby. I know, you don't really think about that until you're uh our age now and then you're like, wow, man, 21. I was like a kid. I mean, I just got my license a few years prior to that. If I graduated not, high school. I know. Were I, you scared? Oh, I was very scared. I'm not going to lie.
2: Yeah. Well, now, now you can admit it,
1: right? Well, of course, yeah. Now I can. But yeah, I mean, when you're sitting in there and you got guys that are that are um charged with murder and I mean I grew up in spots where there's no um tough neighborhoods or anything like that there was no way of learning to be street smart. So that's where I learned basically a lot of um the ins and outs of you know the, the street, being street smart I would say.
2: Were there really murderers in there because we're talking yeah. about North Brunswick, New Jersey.
1: There were? Oh yeah. Yeah, no there was definitely uh, there there are there are there now. I mean you know they're waiting trial but a lot of them are just petty thieves aren't they no you you have everything from shoplifter prostitution all the way up to murder rape, wow
2: okay murder. so that's yeah. no it's that's sort of a misconception i always hate when people say about whatever town fill in the blank oh so so only works there nothing ever happens there as though your job somehow is no, not yeah. dangerous anymore
1: You'd be surprised how in, you know, they call it uh, small town USA, uh, how, I mean, look at what happened out in Boulder, Colorado, you know, it's a ski resort. uh, It's a vacation area, and you got some guy just going, decide that he's going to take his anger out on customers. I'm not really in the loop anymore because I'm retired. But um, I believe North Brunswick already had um, definitely one murder, but I believe they might have had two so far this year. I'm not 100% sure, but
2: yeah, you know, you well, think of a
1: nice town like North Brunswick, and I mean, they have their problems, too.
2: Yeah, it's true. I, I, I hate to be all Debbie Downer, but I don't think they're truly safe anywhere. So I don't think anybody should ever get too comfortable. But I want to hear more about what it was like when you were a corrections officer. So you start out the job, you're terrified, but you don't admit that to anybody, of course, right?
1: No, I mean, it was just in the beginning, I was a little nervous. I mean, it was more nerves. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it, you don't know what you're really doing. I mean, you learn from the academy. But then, I mean, back then, uh, it isn't what they do now. They give you the keys and say, here you go, kid. You know make sure nobody uh, escapes, that's it.
2: There's no on the job training?
1: No, you you get like a week or so of people checking up on you, but no, you you were just given the keys literally and that's it. Now they do that. Now they have a a program put together where they have the people come in that are applying for the job and uh, they'll have them you know, interview, walk around the facility, they want to expose them to that atmosphere, because they want to make sure that the they really want to do this. And then after they get hired, they get hired as a rookie, but they didn't go to the academy yet, they'll have them uh, sit in the units and actually work the units like a corrections officer. And basically, they're doing the actual job of a correction officer It's just they haven't gone to the academy yet.
2: So they,
1: there's time for them to change their minds. Yes. I, I saw a lot of things. I'll tell you that. I mean, there were uh, a couple of stabbings that was completely a culture shock for me. I mean, how so? because like I said, I grew up in a town where, I mean, our biggest crime in the century was mischief night throwing eggs at each other, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, so when you're going from that you know playing manhunt to people getting stabbed i mean that's a complete culture shock for somebody
2: yeah and it's it's uh there's prison culture right it's like yeah. they have their own set of rules and norms and Absolutely. traditions if we want to call them that yeah and you don't necessarily know what that culture is when you start
1: no when you first start but i'll tell you what you have to learn real quick so, I was there for about two and a half years, and it, you you pick up a lot of interesting tricks that are done. Like, for instance, if they want to hide narcotics or maybe a knife or something, a small little blade in their, uh, in their room, they'll take a, a bar of soap, and they'll cut it in half with uh, dental floss. They'll dig out the middle. They'll go and they'll put whatever they want, you know, whatever they're trying to hide in the soap. Put a little water on it and it'll take away the, you know, the, the cutting line on around the soap. You just think it was just right. another bar. soap. yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, I remember one of the other things they did that was pretty deep was um, they would make a bowl out of the bottom part of a bleach bottle. So after the bleach is done, they'll clean it out and everything and then they'll go and they'll take, and I actually asked them. I said, how did you cut that? Because I'm in my head, I'm thinking they had a knife or something. So the guy says, "Here, I'll show you." And he took a piece of dental floss, and as it, he starts going back and forth with it, and he cut right through. It was pretty amazing. I mean, you really do learn a lot of deep little things that uh, it's just uh, ingenuity,
2: resourceful.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, you know, a lot of the people in there, they're pretty smart.
1: No, listen, I. (laughs) There are people from all walks of life. I mean, there was a dentist that was in there, I remember. Um, Like I said, there was several high-profile murders. There was one um, that I remember. He was even, I I see him still on, uh, I don't know if you're watching the ID channel or not, but it was on the ID channel, his whole story.
2: What's his name? Do you remember?
1: uh, Yeah, uh, I remember his last name's Fortin. I don't know if it's Michael Fortin or Kevin Fortin, but his last name was Fortin f-o-r-t-i-n yeah
2: so when you first started did did you feel like the inmates sort of smelled your fresh blood
1: oh they know they call us new boots
2: they do did oh you they kind know of pull, yeah. like pull the wool over your eyes where you did you have to be careful of that
1: yeah i mean i'll tell you it's a funny story i used to in the beginning you know you're sitting down and you're trying to Think like, all right, I got to approach these guys a certain way. And so, you know, you start to go out like with the tough guy, uh, chest out, and I'm going to tell them what they're going to do, and they're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to order them. That's what I'm going to do. So I remember I went down and I said, I'm ordering you now to clean these tables up and get, or you're going back to your room. And they were like, it up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, here's, here's guys that are facing 20 plus years listening to some 20 year old kid telling him he's got to clean these tables or else. So it was just hilarious that, you know, after I said, I'm um, ordering you, I mean, in my head, I was already saying, don't say that you're going to look like an idiot. And sure enough, they all start busting out laughing. I start laughing. And then, you know, from that point, um, it, you know, you start to finally get your niche, you know, you figure out what really needs to be done. You know, though, I mean, look, you got to make sure that the rooms are somewhat clean that, uh, you know, they're keeping themselves healthy. They're eating, you know, they're taking care of themselves. Uh, You know, we've had inmates that, I mean, guys don't shower for like a couple of weeks and that's a health problem for themselves. So we have to bring that to the nurses attention and, Doctor's attention. Write up a report. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to do besides making sure that they don't uh, commit any other crimes or escape or do anything that could possibly harm them or another inmate.
2: So were there times when you were alone with them, or were you always with somebody else?
1: Yeah, from what I remember, uh, the you had the units where they were locked down uh, for a good part part of the day, and you were alone with them, uh, probably about six hours a day. And, you know, for your shift, you worked eight hours. So about five or six hours, they were around you and, but you were alone. And then you had the bigger units. Now there was 48 inmates and then it was me. So you had 48. Oh. Yeah. You had 48. I don't guys. even allow that in daycare. No, I know. Right. Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, And then in the bigger units, it was like 130 or 125 or something like that. And then you had two officers. But there were times, you know, your partner took a break. So it was just you and 120 some guys. And that's usually when stuff would kick off. Uh, Somebody will have a fight or there'll be some sort of gang thing going on. And all of a sudden, it just kicks off. And that's the terminology they use. They
0: being the inmates.
1: The inmates, yeah, or the, or the crashes officers. I mean, you know, just a fight just breaks out. And I mean, I've seen like 20, 30 guys just going at it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: what pretty, do you do? Did, and I have to ask you, did you feel like your training prepared you for it? Or,
1: yeah, no, they definitely do. They train you. I basically, what you do in that situation is you would hit a button or call out what they call a code. And then the, the big boys come in and they clear them out and if anybody's got to get taken out they get them taken out and they put them in uh solitary which is 23 out of 24 hours
2: that's crazy that, yeah. and how that's a really small cell right what's that that the solitary is a really small cell where they're yeah basically
1: out, right? i you know i tell people that that are uh you know i used to tell them like just imagine living in your bathroom for about 23 hours out of the day could you imagine because that's about the size of just an average bathroom you know where there's tub toilet and the sink and that's it that's yeah, not,
2: not not kim kardashian's bathroom
1: no no exactly my bathroom
2: <laughs> yeah our bathroom normal yeah. people
1: yeah exactly
2: no that's rough but i but there weren't windows too right like it's not like in the movies where you see the bars on the windows did you have exposure to sunlight
1: It was very uh, limited. I mean, they they got. I mean, it wasn't completely like brick walled uh, Alcatraz. It was, but the windows were really not that big. I mean, they were like maybe six inches wide, about two feet tall.
2: Well, I mean, the thing that strikes me about it is that there's data on it that it you know your your exposure to sunlight can affect your mood. It can
1: oh, absolutely
2: exacerbate depression. Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually sort of important that not just the inmates have exposure to sunlight, but that you, that the corrections officers do, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, could you imagine working uh, the midnight shift and then you roll into a uh, – you're stuck. A lot of guys that work midnights, would get stuck. So they're going from an atmosphere of it being very quiet, and then now they're working their seven to three shift and it's like complete hell breaks loose. I mean, they're up They're When I say they, I mean, you know, they might up and, and, yeah. um, you know, you've been in rooms where people have conversations in a lunchroom or something. It's very loud and it just gets to you after a while. Your head is just, you, you go home with splitting headaches.
2: Did you ever form any relationships? I don't really know the word to use. Like, were there certain yeah. things that you talked to that you liked? You almost felt like in a weird way, if if we had met under other circumstances, we'd be friends.
1: Um, not necessarily like being friends or anything like that, but that's what I was getting into before after the whole I order you type of thing, is that you you start to realize that they bleed like we do, they breathe like we do. They're not, you know, some sort of animal, these are human beings. And they have emotions and feelings, uh, just like you and I. And, you know, it was funny, because, you know, I used to sit back and think, you know, growing up as a kid, you were brought up your father and mother told you bad people go to jail, you know, do you want to be a bad person? And that's what we were taught.
0: Yeah. And,
1: you know, then there comes a time when I was working narrowly, I was only there for a little over two and a half years, or right around there. But they uh, when I, you know, the inmates there, they're all, they were generally really nice people that just happened to make bad decisions. That's, that's the way I look at everyone that's in the jail now. And yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, because I did make, um, not friends, but just being friendly. They, you know, everyone would come up to me, talk and, you know, just want to know what's going on outside any information they just wanted to know like what's new, what's going on. And uh, I mean, could you imagine like 20 years ago if somebody went in jail and they came out now, the culture shock that they would have, I mean, no. you know, yeah. I mean, you, you ask them what app they got, they're thinking you're, you know, you got a shrimp cocktail, you know, for an appetizer. That's what they know of apps. They don't know anything about apps, you know?
2: Yeah. So. Definitely something I think about a lot. And, in- Yes, Um, kind of question, like, what should we really be doing for inmates
1: when they're in? I mean, it's just really, it's about mental health now. That's where the shift should be. It should be focusing around mental health. Why did they do what they did instead of punishing them?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think um I've read that there's an overwhelming percentage of the males. I don't know about the females, but I would venture to say it's probably similar. But the males in prison uh, came from fatherless homes.
1: I'm sure there's statistics on that. Absolutely.
2: So but yeah, that's I would love to, to have more conversation about that. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: Another another podcast. Sure. So you didn't like it there, though, because obviously you were looking to leave.
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a police officer. At that point, then I started to actually like that whole atmosphere. I mean, I met a lot of good guys. We all decided we were going to take the test again. So I took the civil service test, and I was able to get a job at the Middlesex County Sheriff's Department.
2: Okay. So you wanted to be in law enforcement and the CO position was just something that opened up for you. And that's why you took
1: it. Yeah. it was a, it was a stepping stone for me and, you know, uh, to give the position uh respect, they are in the law enforcement category. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be on the streets. I wanted to engage with the people, save the world. You know, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, working inside hence the
2: Superman.
1: Yes. Hence the <laughs> Superman. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just a, it was just the excitement of it all. Uh, it was very appealing.
2: I have a friend who says that the only difference between the inmates and the COs is the people holding the keys.
1: That's a good reference. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you're basically doing time with them. I forgot what he, I think the number if you did 25 year career and then you know you add up all the hours it comes out to like I think almost 10 years of prison that you do.
2: I don't know if these are just um, you know just stereotypes but you hear that a lot of times CEOs will kind of go dirty because they're they're around this influence of, of inmates and you know people who live by a different code, a lot of them. And they might see opportunities to i don't know make money or
1: whatever i mean look I, I don't know if it's necessarily the their environment or if it's influenced by money you know like you mentioned but yes I mean throughout all of law enforcement, whether it's your corrections or sheriff's officer or police officer there there's a lot of stuff that happens i've seen it. Uh, I've uh, experienced it as you know. So, but yeah, I mean, it, like I said, e- even police officers, correctional officers and sheriff's officer, I mean, they make dumb mistakes. They make dumb decisions.
2: Were there any examples you could give when you were.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of guys that were uh, having, you know, sexual affairs with a couple of the female inmates. How?
2: They
1: have access to them? I don't even know. I, you know, they somehow or they, it was in the paper. That's all I remember. You, you went to work one day and you found out and you're like, Oh, this guy and that guy just were arrested for that. Wow. There was a, there was a guy that got in trouble with uh child pornography. So, uh, it, you know, there was a lot of th- drugs. Uh, there was a social worker that was bringing drugs in for the, uh, inmates.
2: Did you ever know of anything that was going on, though? Because I know there's like this code to, you know, not squeal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything really that was, I mean, I've seen guys like, you're not, they're not supposed to smoke. And I've seen guys give cigarettes out. So it wasn't really anything harmful. You know, I mean, they, they smoke. They get the drugs in. They get money in. I've seen cell phones. And matter of fact, I even seen a gun. Someone smuggled a gun in. Could you imagine that? No. Like, how the hell did you get a gun in here? Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Well,
2: you would have had to have cooperation of somebody, right? Of course. You have to I go mean. It, a metal it,
1: it, it, yeah, absolutely. Even the correction officers have to go through a metal detector. They get a, you know, their stuff searched, but. Somehow, someway. I mean, the stuff gets in there.
2: Well, was there pressure, but amongst the officers, to if somebody found out, like if somebody found out you were, you know, smuggling drugs in for inmates, was there an understanding that they're gonna they're gonna squeal, or was there a different kind of code, like, well, you're not supposed to tell,
0: because then you become the rat.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, I, I think when it came to stuff like that it was more or less like you now turned into one of them. That was the thought behind it. So there was no, like you would, I think more or less what you're getting at is like, if somebody, if a correctional officer beat up an inmate, I saw stuff like that back then. And you just kept your mouth shut. But if somebody was to bring in drugs or something to the inmates, Then now they reported it. It was no cool. That's hard too
2: when you're 21.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was.
2: You see something shady.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, the the one thing I always remembered was that, and guys took me under their wings. Guys that were there for 15 plus years, and they they always said to me, "Don't give them anything because they will own you," and it's true. And I think that's what happened, like, in the case where the two guys uh, were fired because they had a sexual relationship with these two female inmates. So they had something on them. I think they were bringing in drugs in exchange for sex. Like I said, I I came to work one day and I found out and I was like, oh, my God. All right. Yeah. So you were
2: there two and a half years, you said? Yes, and then so how were you so thrilled to get out of there when you got the other job?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it, I give the guys an unbelievable amount of respect for making a career there. You have to be a special person. So, it but it was not for me. No, I, I wanted to be out. I wanted to be out on the road. And uh, same thing with the sheriff's department. That was a complete different culture. That was the other side where I was sitting in a courtroom. And, you know, it, it's a very respectful job. i very grateful that I was able to work for the Middlesex County Sheriff's Department. But it, again, it wasn't for me. I wanted to do something different. It was a little bit more slow pace.
2: Well, you weren't really on the road, like you said. You were inside all the time, right? At the
1: yeah, court. I was in the court. I was in the courthouse. Yep. So, you know, being in the courthouse, it's a little tough. You know, it's a, it gets very boring. You hear the same cases. and. Uh, You know, I was in the family division, the divorce uh, section, basically. And so, you know, after a while, it just gets boring. They do have guys that are on the road for the sheriff's department. You know, they transport the prisoners or sometimes they'll have them doing road details, uh, stopping cars and everything. But it wasn't really as involved. I don't know what they do now, but, you know, at the time when I was working there, it was more or less just court supervision. Bringing the inmates back and forth.
2: So, how was that different, though, than when you were a CEO?
1: Uh, basically, because I wasn't locked down, they get to go back. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I see them for an hour, and then they go back, and that was it.
2: Did you feel like you were street smart by the time you left the CEO yeah. position?
1: Oh, by the time I left, yeah, no, definitely. And, like, and I learned a lot from the correction officers, too, because they would tell you, look out for this and look out for that. You know, when we did our what they call shakedowns, you know, they go in the rooms and they strip everything down to metal or concrete. So everything gets taken out. They get searched, everything. So that's where, they would, where I learned about things like the soap, where they would hide stuff. Uh, they would go and take a milk cart and put stuff inside the milk cart and put string, you know, the dental floss around it like barely flush it and then you would see a string coming out of the toilet now who, who would put their hands in the toilet or even think to look there but that's where they would hide some stuff
2: wow yeah i mean it's stuff i would never think of but i guess you don't think of it or learn it until you're in a position where you need it and it's useful
1: yeah exactly
2: i have no need to hide anything in my toilet bowl so no. never come up.
1: no everything in the toilet bowl is leaving
2: yeah, that's it. You're getting rid of that. <laughs> Not
1: interesting
2: So, but did you feel like you had maybe a little bit of an edge when you got into I don't want to say regular law enforcement, but when you were in a as a
1: police condition? officer?
2: Yeah. Did yeah. you feel like you kind of had like maybe an edge, a different kind of education than the others did? Yeah,
1: you definitely did. If you were say brought up in a town like I was, and then you became a police officer, I I always think or well, I, I recommend that you should at least do a year or so in a uh, correction facility before you become a police officer. I think it's, a, uh, although, you know, like I said, although it wasn't what I wanted to do, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. So for just having that experience definitely helped me because I could, just the eye movement, the body movement, you just recognize it. Not only that, a lot of the people that I saw on the streets were the same people I saw inside the jail. So, yeah, you, you well, know, you build you a relationship.
2: By, what do you mean by eye movement and body movement?
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different, like, say, if you, you're you going to, you know, when someone is going to run on you, you could just tell, and you could cut that right off right away because I would, you know, you get in front of them. You're like, listen, man, don't run on me. I know what you're thinking. You know, so it's just that conversation that you would have with them. And like I said, that you, you know, I treated everybody with respect at the jail. So when he saw me on the street, they gave me that respect back. And I always, and I would say to them, Hey, you know, you remember me not too long ago, I saw you and I was always very good to you. And he'd be like, yeah, man, you're right. You're right. You got that. So, you know, it was that street cred that, yeah, you, know, you got it. And, and that's really what it all came down to was just treating everybody like, a, you know, a man, you know, wanted to be treated like a man. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and it was just like about human being. Yeah, exactly.
2: Do you feel like you have some special, um I don't know, awareness of human behavior be, that maybe the rest of us don't have because of your career? Yeah, I mean, it,
1: there's a lot of things you do that I mean, well, with COVID around, I haven't really noticed if I still do it. But like for instance, I always have my back to the wall, no matter where I go. And I probably still do that and just don't notice it. And the reason why is because you just want to scan the whole room. And also you want to know where your fire escape is. So, yes, you do think about these things. Your family really and friends. Do. Yeah, your family, your friends have no clue what's going on in your head, but there's guys that actually sit back and think, hey, uh, you know, all right, if this situation happens, I'm going to do this. If that happens, if the French fries fall on the ground and blah, blah, you know, and I, I don't want to slip on them, you know, so you start yeah. to think about all these crazy things and, you you know, your uh, significant other or your friends or whoever are having a conversation with you and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Meanwhile, you're thinking about like, this place is going to have a fire, or there's going to be an active shooter and what are you going to do. But yeah, you you do do that. I mean, it's funny. And and the funny part is that when you go to Dunkin Donuts with a couple of your friends, and everybody's got their back to the wall, and we're trying to have a conversation and we're all looking straight ahead talking. That's the funniest thing.
2: You know, it's funny because... Like I said, my boyfriend's a police officer and just mm-hmm. the same thing. He always has to have his back to the wall. And I sort of tease him like, really, you know, come on now. Like what's going to happen here? Yeah. And I really get, I, you know, it'll turn into like, you know, a, a, not an argument, but like kind of joking with each other that when you, we go into a restaurant, a nice restaurant where they have all the, um, the they have the bench up mm-hmm. against the wall and then a table, and then a chair on the other side. Yes, you see all the women sitting on the bench, mm-hmm. and the dude is on the outside, but not at our table. At no. our table, yeah, my boyfriend's on the bench. I'm like, really? You're gonna? I'm gonna be the only woman sitting at the at the chair.
0: Yeah, but it's so it's true. just something
2: I've learned to to do for him. It makes him happy. But another thing I've noticed is he'll we'll leave someplace, and he'll say. Something about you know the guy with the red shirt on. He's like, I didn't see a guy with a red shirt on. I don't know who you're talking about, but he remembers the guy with the red shirt. And I'm like, he really does pay attention to who.
1: Yeah, you do. You do. You you know you'll go to Walmart, you'll go to Target, Home Depot, wherever, and you'll see people that you've encountered with. And that's why that was another reason why I always treated people with a lot of respect was because you know, I have kids now and I want to make sure that I go to Home Depot and, you know, nothing happens. I don't want to get confronted. And the, yeah. the speaking of my kids, I mean, I even told my kids, I said, if something were to ever happen, don't stand there. I want you to run and go get help. There's nothing you could do. Don't worry about me. Whatever happens. Don't even look, just go running straight and go get help. And that's the lifestyle of a police officer. You know, well, it's also
2: very stressful though. Um, you know, there's a lot. I, I went to um I actually happened to be at the PBA Mini Convention one year mm-hmm. uh, because I have a divorce law firm and we thought it'd be a good population to advertise to.
1: Yeah, I bet you had and, a lot of fun.
2: It, yeah, it was. <laughs> and we we I did kind of snoop around and, and go into some of the seminars because I'm nerdy like that and I wanted to to learn something and see what they were teaching and there was a guy there I wish I could remember his name because I was really impressed with him he was a former police officer but now he does counseling for police officers that have post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. and he said a lot of officers can really have it and not even realize that they have it because they don't you don't have to have gone to war and been in combat Or even have had any particularly traumatic experience as a police officer to still have some symptoms of it just from the lifestyle.
1: Absolutely. A, A lot of people think of PTSD as just being military related. And, I mean, without a doubt, there are a lot of people that are in the military that are affected by that and have been diagnosed. But, I mean, anybody could be diagnosed with PTSD. And I actually have. And, uh, the reason why is, and I've had the, it took a very long time for me to even speak about it, but one of the things that affected me was, and I was actually just talking to a friend about it that was on the scene. It was one of those February afternoons where it was like 65, 70 degrees out. We were in a, uh, we get a call of a two-year-old baby that drowned and, so we rush out to the to the house and I grabbed the baby from the mother who pulled her out of the water. It was a ravine in the back where the mother would bring her daughter to go feed the ducks. And like I said, it was one of those uh, February afternoons where it was beautiful out and everybody was outside just communicating, talking, How you know, how's everything going? How was your holidays, blah, blah, blah. And it was one of those situations where, I mean, in a split second, I mean, people with kids, it happens all the time. It takes one second. So the family thought she went to the house. So they ran to the house to see if the baby was inside the house. Meanwhile, that precious time, she actually went to the, to the back of the woods where there's a small lake. She slipped. She, you know, probably was going to touch the water or something, but, Unfortunately, she drowned. And I mean, you know, we, we did CPR on her, I had her right in my arms. And, you know, it was one of those very, oh, man, <laughs> get emotional already thinking about it. But yeah, it, it really affected me. And it was, I mean, she died right in my arms. I mean, I felt her heart beat very slight. But because it was cold water, it kept her heart just a little bit and it was just very very sad it affected me I mean I had nightmares for years with that and I never really talked about it one of the guys who had a similar situation talked to me about it a couple of times but I mean as a you know police officers we just go and put it in the back of our heads and you know it was one of those things that I just could not put in the back of my head one of those scenes I mean I've seen a lot of things even in a town like North a nice little town, you know, seen everything.
2: Well, that's exactly what I mean by that. When people say, "Oh, nothing ever happens there," it doesn't it doesn't mean it's not still a tough job.
1: Yeah, I mean, just because there's not, it's not Camden or Newark where there's you know carjackings, drive-by shootings. I mean, the police are got. Yeah, they are tough towns to work in as a police officer for sure. But there are situations, just like that, where you know, it could affect you for the rest of your life. I mean, I had nightmares for a very long time. and It really affected me. Uh, and, you know, it's just it was a very, very sad situation. I was down at the hospital. There was a lot of guys down there, a lot of guys were emotional. I mean, cops do cry. I was all in my eyes out with the family trying to comfort them. And they were like comforting me. I mean, it was just a very, very emotional uh, situation. So I would
2: imagine anything with kids like that is
1: really hard. Well, that was the thing too, is that I had my, my son was the same age as her at that time. So, you know, you're sitting back and you ever see a movie and like, you're watching a scene and like the, there's a flash and you're like, say there's a couple in a scene and there's a flash and then you see the person's face and then the face changes to somebody else. That's what I actually saw. I felt like I was doing CPR on my son and they, they were having night. I was having nightmares like that for a very long time. Wow. Mm.
2: Did you take any extra precautions in your household after that? Like, I always think it's a really important yeah. to people, everybody, every single person to know CPR.
1: Oh God. I, I yes. Well, mom, before we even had, uh, you know, my ex and I, we made sure everybody took a CPR class, actually, before we, my son was even born. And it is important. And it's something that, you know, you just don't take once and then that's it. You know, you have to take it a couple of times. It's just like anything, you know, you have to practice it. Uh, there was another incident where I was right around the corner and a boy uh, drowned. And I was able to actually bring him back. And I was so grateful because I just was like, thinking, I don't want this to happen again. But oh, my yeah. My parents were so grateful. Oh, God. They, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I, you know, they were just obviously very happy that their son was alive and well. But so you left the sheriff's department. How long were you there? I was there for about five years. Yeah, oh, 2000, okay. yeah, 2000 to 2005.
2: I thought you were there a lot longer than that.
1: No, no, it wasn't that much.
2: And then you went to North Brunswick Police Department. Yeah. And how long were you there?
1: Uh, 17, no, 16 years, 16 years, I believe.
2: You were in North Brunswick for 16 I know. years?
1: I know. I yeah, can't believe I think it that. Was, I have to do my math. I got to count my toes, but.
2: Yeah. so you were actually actively seeking other employment to get out of the courthouse
1: well as you know my good friend joe Mm -hmm. who you know very well we basically uh were following each other from you know the the jail we met each other at the jail very good friend of mine and you know we went to the sheriff's department together and then we went to the you know he went to north brunswick before i did but uh you know Told me that there was an opening and yeah i, I took it it's uh it was a great opportunity for me
2: and how was that did you love it in the beginning
1: yeah i really did i mean i i i still love being a police officer the uh you know the whole uh job itself i i really do i do miss the uniform uh there's a there's a saying that goes around headquarters uh you know you 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 miss the clowns. You don't miss the circus.
2: Yes. I've heard that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the guys were all great. Everybody was really nice. Uh, you know, good teamwork. Uh, you know, you have your problems here and there, but it's like family. Uh, you're going to fight with your brothers and sisters. It happens. And then you get over it and you, you know, but I'll tell you what, no matter what happened, whether you got along with the, your partner or not, when it came to work and safety, everybody had each other's backs. And that was one thing we always, that was the, even when I became a supervisor, I always said, I don't care how you feel about anybody you better have this person's back. And that was important.
2: Well, it's sort of a, a, I think you guys call it a paramilitary um, organization, right? Yeah, it is.
1: Paramilitary kind of situation. Yep. Right from the Academy.
2: Yeah. And um, I, I, you know, probably a lot of what I understand about law enforcement is, is partly from television, which is a lot of people. Sure. Um, or exposure that I've had to police officers, you know, hanging around with you and your friends and and now mm-hmm. having a boyfriend who's a police officer. And you do get a different perspective. I don't necessarily think what we see on television is is accurate. Is there any TV show or movie you've seen that you felt was accurate?
1: Oh, man. Maybe. uh, I I don't even know that. You know, what's so funny. I don't even watch uh, any police shows at all. I was never I was never one of those guys like cops or anything. I mean, that would really be it. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is any of those reality shows? Obviously. I mean, there's probably some little bit of staging, but you really can't make up some of the stuff those guys are going through. But, yeah, I mean, as far as like a regular show, oh, God, what was that one? There was one in there's one in New York and one in a uh, law and order. I would say that was pretty accurate. You know, really? Multi- yeah. I mean, there was, you know, maybe a little bit of theatrics with, uh, you know, the forensic stuff, you know, they find a hair like in the middle of the woods, you know, <laughs> all yeah. by itself. It will always but, be the
2: killer's hair. <laughs> yes, always,
1: always. they will to find a cigarette 10 feet deep in a grave, you know, so. yeah
2: Yeah. Um, Well, something I've heard, too, is some I don't remember all of the circumstances, but something happens and I heard that the officers at headquarters were were laughing about it. And and I and I don't remember exactly what it was. I want to say it was it might have been a sexual assault on Mm. somebody and people were making jokes about it and really? I got really upset when I heard it. And I was like, you know, that's not funny. Like no, that person is a victim and her yeah. family is affected by it. And for you to, to make jokes about it is so insensitive.
1: Very insensitive. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. But then the person said something to me that I thought, okay, well maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I, I just don't understand. He, he said, yeah and it wasn't Russ. It was someone else. Um, he said, well, you know, we kind of have to, sometimes we have to make humor because if Mm -hmm. we didn't, it would just be so heavy all the time.
1: Yes. In that case, I would not have thought humor would have been appropriate. Um, I mean, put it this way. Yes. you know, for the people that are going to be watching this, it's going to be tough for me to be able to have any sort of support. But you do joke around about certain things. Obviously, a rape is not something that I would joke around about. But there might be something that may have happened that you just start joking around about other things that may have happened. Like maybe something funny that happened at a tailgating or at a, you know, a bar one night. You know, but it's more or less a change of subject, but I don't know necessarily anybody would want to joke around about something like that, but maybe just joking around in general, although that, you know, it's still, it's still inappropriate, especially if you're joking and laughing into victims right there, the family's there. Yes. I, I mean, if I was a supervisor, I would say, guys, you know, calm down. All right. Do that outside do that later do that at the coffee shop but but yes you have that's one of the coping mechanisms police officers use is humor and that's where again we come compartmentalize everything we try to put that in the back of our head like it didn't exist and you just wait for the next call and that's how you do this for 25 years
2: yeah it's it's a long time people are you know a lot of people we get jealous you know the the rest of us have to work until we're whatever retirement age is Mm -hmm. and um you guys don't have to work as long and you get those beautiful pensions that um, i fight over when people are getting divorced yes
1: we know very. yes you're a part of mine
2: (laughs) yes yes and we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna get to to some of that Mm -hmm. but um You know, it's interesting because even with what I do, I'm a divorce lawyer, you know, the cases I see are usually higher conflict because that's, those are the people that need lawyers, right? Of course. Um, and a lot of times you'll get clients that will say, you know, you don't care, you know, you're not fighting for me because they want to see you reacting the way that they are being emotional and you know they want to see that to them it's a showing that you care and i would always say to them but you don't want me to be like that Mm -mm. because someone has to be intellectual someone has to be making intellectual decisions
1: it's a business decision between a couple that's really what it comes down to and you know again people are seeing what's on tv you know they're seeing all the theatrics all the emotions and yelling and screaming but you know again it's tv So that's a lot of what they're if you're not yelling and screaming, then someone will think, my God, this person doesn't even care. They're just letting this person walk all over me. And if you get the other attorney who is, uh, which I would say is unprofessional, screaming and yelling, and you're not, then they're going to think, well, why isn't she screaming like that for me?
2: Yeah, I mean, people have different expectations, but but that's always my explanation is you don't want me to be emotional. I'm no. not the one getting divorced and I can't be effective for you if I'm just as emotional as you are. So mm-hmm. I would think that is something similar in law enforcement is you yes. can't take on the emotions of every single situation that you find yourself in.
1: No, you, you definitely can. not I mean, if you did, I, I, you know, it's so funny, like I bring up the, the super, you know, I'm bringing up the little Superman over here, but I used to joke around with the guys and I used to tell them, you know, as, as time went on, I became a veteran, I'm just turning into the old guy. And I would tell them, look, get dressed at work. It does what it does for me mentally is you hanging up the Cape and you go home. And I literally, that's what helped me out the last couple years uh, before I retired was just mentally hanging up that Cape, uh, and, you know, it was, you were able to go home free. Yeah. I mean, that took a lot of therapy to get to that, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that helped me out. And, but a lot of guys, unfortunately, uh, you know, especially younger guys they don't, that don't know that. And if they don't have somebody telling them or expressing what happened in their life, I was always open with my emotions and feelings, especially towards the end of my career which we'll get into obviously why, but uh, you know, a lot of guys there just keep it. And I was one of them. You keep it inside, you keep it inside. And then what happens is you go home and that's where you explode. And that's why the, that's why police officers have a high divorce rate, high suicide rate. A lot of it is most police officers introvert and you know, it's, I'm a complete proponent for therapy.
2: I mean obviously I'm not saying anything that we don't already all know is that I, there's certain professions where that machismo if that's the right word mm-hmm. um you know yeah. a certain level of masculinity is
1: Absolutely is no that is a great yeah that was a great term machismo yeah.
2: yeah I've pretty much just gone over your resume but we know that there were other things going on at different mm-hmm. times that yeah. that we haven't talked about and even some things that I'm not really totally aware of, because w- when you were a sheriff's officer, we talked a lot more mm-hmm. because we worked together. But then over time, you know, you of had another job. I was busy learning how to be a lawyer and we sort of lost touch. And and I wasn't really. And you went and
1: got a boyfriend and ruined our bromance.
2: Yeah. So I. You know, I, 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 and I feel a little bad, you know, when I heard that you were having some troubles that Mm -hmm. I didn't even know. And, and we've been such good friends for such a long time that I didn't even know.
1: No, you didn't know. And believe it or not, my family and my friends didn't know either. I didn't let anybody know until they realized what's going on with Danny. Something is, he is not himself anymore.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you're going through your career. I mean, to anybody on the outside, it looks like, wow, look at Danny, you know, he's successful. He's, he's really moving up in law enforcement. He's got a great job. He's making money.
1: Yeah, he's doing very well. Um, well, I'll tell you, I mean, 2009, I even started my own little business with, uh, you know, my, selling, uh, back braces and knee braces and everything. And I was really enjoying that because it was something other than police work. And, you know, I always do an overtime and, and, you know, some off duty jobs, but I wanted to do something different something something completely different where it was just nice to go in an office, bring a box of Joe and some donuts to the doctor and the staff, you know, say hello, uh, you know, please buy my product or at least have your patients come see me. And that was it. Uh, It was, it was, I was doing very well. And like I said, uh, just the job just started to get, uh, it just started really getting to me where Where I started. I
2: was like, how far in?
1: Well, I would say maybe 2011, 2012, I would say around 2012. So at that point, I had about, let's see, uh, I don't know, let's see about 15, 16 years in. And I, I mean, I had a, you know, a lot of time in law enforcement and you know, just, I I could honestly say I was not the cop cop, you know, that cops, that cop cop, whatever you want to call it, you know, I I guess like a better way of saying is I wasn't that kid that grew up that wanted to be a police officer. You know, uh, I actually wanted to, my father was a civil engineer and that was where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to NJIT like he did. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he passed away at a young age, but uh, I still had, uh, some sort of, you know, path in mind that I wanted to become a civil engineer. And like I said, my father-in-law at that time was to take the test. And then I felt very pressured with getting, cause I'm like, man, well, I did good now. I, I mean, I was actually hoping I failed, but I still, me in general, I'm not one to go and take a test or do something and try to fail, but I passed. I did very well. And I just took the job. And I just, it was one of those things where I was like, man, I really don't know if this is me.
2: Did you feel like an imposter the whole time?
1: No, not really. Because then I met friends and, uh, you know, I saw how much fun they were having and things we were doing. I mean, you know, just, you know, going out, getting a bad guy and, you know, saving the world. I mean, that's what we signed up for. And, you know, there was a lot of fun with a lot of laughs. I mean, we, you know, police officers had the best sense of humor, you know, so we had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, most of my friends and, you know, it, we were, we just had a really good time and it was nice to, break up that monotony at work. You know, you have uh, you know, you have the job itself. And then, you know, you have policies, rules, regulations, state, federal, you got all this pressure on you that, you know, you have to, especially towards the latter part of my career, you know, then cameras came in. And there's a lot of pressure. People don't realize it, but there's a lot of pressure. You're like, my God, if in one split second, you can go from going home to the jail being your new home in one split second, one bad decision. And that's a lot of stress for a police officer to have throughout their career. And so that's you had body
2: cams implemented while you, when you were working.
1: Yes. Uh, towards the end, like the last couple of years.
2: So did did you, it sounds like you answered this question already, but was there any debate about whether the body cams actually could be good for the police officers? No, yeah,
1: I definitely can answer that. You know, in the beginning, we were like, oh, man, you know, we can't do our job. You know, you can't curse. Sometimes you got to curse to get people's attention. So you might have to drop the F bomb to get their attention, you know. So now it's like, okay, you can't do that. You know, uh, are you not allowed to do that? Is there some rule against that? It's not. It's just unprofessional. You know, especially if you're in a courtroom and the next thing you know, the judge sees you and the jury sees you sitting back dropping the F-bomb seven times because the guy's not listening, you know, I was
2: going to say, I don't know any lawyers that aren't dropping F-bombs constantly, not in the courtroom, (laughs) but
1: outside. just imagine if that's where it was and now it's being taped, you know, so. But. You know, there is, you have to get, you know, there's levels of force, you know, you're familiar with use of force and one of them are, is verbal commands. So, you you know, you might have to like, a lot of people sit back and say like, we go, you know, now we have to go and say, please. And sorry. Yeah. Those are nice things. Those are things that you should say in the beginning of your interview, when you make first contact, you know, how are you? How's the family? What's going on today? How can I help you? Uh, please, could you please have a seat? You know, you say it a couple of times, and if they don't listen, then it, that's where the F bombs go sit the uh, F down, or else you're coming down with me with, uh, you know, you're coming down to headquarters. Well, you've got to show your authorita. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then there were a couple of incidents where. Uh, You know, this was right around where Ferguson started, Uh, you know, that whole thing kicked off and there was a lot of racial tension. Uh, Cameras were starting to now be a big thing that the, you know, the public wanted us to have. And there were a couple of incidences where we had, thank God, the guys had their cameras on because they might not have their job right now. But there was a couple of situations where, you know, the people and this is in small town, North Brunswick. Guy was uh, videotaping, saying the cops are doing this and doing that and blah blah blah, and the uh, I believe one of the reverends, you know, one of the community leaders, went down to headquarters to find out if there was any sort of civil rights violation. At that time, the director and the chief went, showed them the video, and was like, "No, this is what happened." So he was able to go back to his congregation, the community and say, listen, I saw the tape and everything that kid said, none of of that happened. So then the guy started realizing how uh, important the cameras actually were, that they were gonna save your job more likely than with them not uh, available.
2: Well, I think some people have this perception that police officers are dirty. They just do whatever the hell they want and they're all gonna lie for each other. They're gonna mm-hmm. protect each other. And what, what would you say to that? Back in
1: 1997? yes. Uh, you know, you know, we we did a lot of different things. It was not there was definitely different tactics on how to uh, get the ill repute out of your town, you know, and I mean at that time that's what we that's what we were taught. This wasn't something, I mean, this was taught in the academy.
2: It Uh, was taught in the academy?
1: Yeah, I mean, not beating people, but I'm saying like just that aggressive command presence where, you know, you might have to grab the guy by the arm and say, dude, listen, you're not paying attention. You got to, you know, this was before people were being identified as, you know, with having EDP uh, or, you know, cops didn't know anything about people that that are autistic. Uh, you know, any sort of mental health issues. I mean, all those things were never brought up. It was, you're not listening. You're coming with me. And that was really it. It was my way or the highway. And that's what we were taught in, a, in the academy, basically.
2: So let's get back to you and your personal experience. Yeah. So, so take me through it. I want you okay. to tell your story. I'm not going to tell your story for you. You start this this business um where you're selling back races is that what
1: mm-hmm.
2: it was where did things start to go wrong for you
1: you know like i said i i started to like not like being a police uh like see I, it's very tough because i i just said moments ago i i missed the the job but there there's aspects of the job i do miss but there is a good portion of it. I just did not like anymore. I just didn't I didn't like the stress I didn't I wasn't good with handling the uh some of the stressful calls, you know, where somebody just blew their head off. Or there was an accident and the guy lost his head. Or, you know, I, I was not good with all that gore stuff. So I never talked about it never did. I mean, there's guys if they end up listening to this, they're gonna be like, I never knew that. But and After was that while, something you
2: saw regularly?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you did. I mean, there was a, there was a call where our friend of mine well, my partner, uh, where we were on a, a woman that just committed suicide and I'm not even kidding. I swear this is going to sound completely crazy, but you would hear footprint footsteps going on upstairs. And I was like, yo, what's going on dude I thought you said there was nobody upstairs because you got to treat it like a crime scene even though it's obvious it's suicide you still got to treat it like crime scene and you know you get everybody out of the house I'm not even kidding we hear footsteps going on above us and going upstairs nobody there looking all over the place so it's just like all that I, I that's obviously like uh, an isolated situation that doesn't happen all the time but I mean I was like man dude this girl's this is where like that police humor comes in a little bit where you're trying to not freak out, but you're like, man, I think she's running around all over the place, you know? So yeah. We could,
2: creepy.
1: yeah yes. But, um, you know, well, just the other person that.
2: here too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We both looked at each other. It was very obvious. I'm not even kidding. Like I'm not one that believes in ghosts really that much. I mean, I don't know who knows. I never paid attention to it, but that was, it was very obvious. It wasn't like, pitter patter of church mice running around sounded like somebody was walking upstairs. And then I was, we looked at each other and we're like, I thought you cleared the house. Oh my God. So, See, that's
0: where
2: I would, I would not be a good police officer because I'd be like, we I'm need to leave here. right but now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, uh, that was the other thing too, was that you couldn't leave. So if yeah. you were somebody that was like that, like me, freaked out over something like that, you know, you couldn't leave. You had to stay.
2: Yeah. Like you, I'd be thinking we need to call somebody, but then realizing, well, you're the people that we would need All to the
1: call. Police. Yeah. <laughs> call 911.
2: All right. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So,
1: yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, to make a long story short, the job got to me. Uh, there was an incident where uh, we, you know, you remember when the, oh, they still have it, the youth festival was on route one, you know, it's a huge carnival. They, yeah. Yeah, so there was a huge fight, like uh, which actually was we ended up finding out it was a staged fight, and they started to assault. Uh, there was a, uh, a Latino gang was pretending that they were fighting each other, and as soon as the officers, the two officers uh, that were in that area, went to go pull the guys off, they all jumped on them. So you know, I'm running there, whatever. I actually tripped like a fool, fell on the ground. And I got trampled on because while I was running to go to where the officers were trying, you know, to back up, give you know, help them, people were running with me, like just the general crowd. It was very crowded. It was a crowded night. So I I ended up getting trampled on and everything. It was crazy. Uh, the guys joke around about it. But because uh, they said, like, as soon as I fell, like dust flew all over the place, like a uh, pig pen. And but it but anyway. You know, I hurt my back and, uh, and my neck, and I was out for a while. And I just remembered, like, there was a couple of guys at that time that pensioned out. They, you know, they took a pension and uh, medical pension or disability pension for uh, other, their issues, whatever they got hurt at work. But, so I was sitting back and I was saying to myself, like, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to get the hell out of this job. And at least collect something out of it. Now, I mean, uh, obviously, it, what ends up happening is, and you know, let me take a step back. I mean, I did hurt myself. And, you know, I was being prescribed uh, at that time, oxycodone. So being on and off that, there was a lot of emotions involved, which I didn't know anything that was going on. Plus, at that time, I was drinking a lot. So
2: would you say you were an alcoholic?
1: I can now say that I was definitely. I was an alcoholic since I was 13 years old. Really? I just never I just never identified with it. I didn't know about that.
2: So you think that even all through your twenties and thirties, you were an alcoholic.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: It never occurred to me that you might be.
1: Because you only saw me at the bars. You never saw me when I would get home and continue drinking. See, a lot of people, and I never really thought it was a big deal because I'm like, oh, I just want another beer, you know, but then it was six beers and a couple of shots and then you passed out. But I never realized that I had a problem at that time because I didn't want to either acknowledge it or identify or think into my, well, I'll tell you exactly one of the things that it was in the back of my head, especially when I was taking the um, oxycodone was, well, the doctor gave me this and alcohol is legal. I mean, it can't be that bad of a situation. So I justified it with all that. But um, real quick, just, I, I, so I put in for a pension disability and I got denied. And that was it after that. Emotionally, I was gone. I, I, you know, I was, I I fell right into a big depression because mentally I put my, eggs all in a basket. I already had myself retired. I mean, guys were like practically, I mean, they were buying me drinks and having parties that I was leaving because at that time, it was, you know, if you had an issue with your neck and your back, like with bulge discs or herniations or whatever, you were guaranteed pretty much to get a pension. So I was sitting back like, all right, this is great. I get the hell out of this job. Like I said, it wasn't the guys or anything. It wasn't the clowns. It was the circus. I just had enough of it. And after that, that was it. I end up becoming uh, heavily addicted to uh, pills, oxycodone, pain, pain medication, and my drinking like quadruple. And I lived that way till.
2: 2017 so how many years was
1: that well february of uh 2013
2: Just was, 17? yeah that's a long I mean,
1: time I'm, yeah yeah and it wasn't like uh you know i mean i like i said i've always i remember i got my first time I ever got drunk up was 13.
2: that's young yeah
1: and you know so i mean those four years, it wasn't like I was just having a six pack. I was drinking the uh, a liter of Jameson whiskey a night.
2: A liter.
1: A liter.
2: Wow. Yep. How do you still have a functioning liver?
1: I don't know. I I, I have no clue. Believe it or not, I had no signs of cir- cirrhosis or anything. I was very very surprised.
2: Did anybody in your life ever, I mean, I know they did, but at what point did people start saying, Danny, I think you have a problem?
1: Yeah, it was probably around 2014, going into 2015, my wife at the time, Jen, uh, you know, she was starting, you know, I wasn't really there. I wasn't helping. I I basically would leave work we uh, would go to, right to the liquor store. Uh, sometimes even while I was working, I, if, if I was working late or whatever, or it was closing or I didn't have any at home, you know, I'd go while I was working to pick up the bottles and put it in my car for when I got home. And I mean, I remember going and pulling over on the side of the road and like guzzling just before I got home. So I was like ready to deal with the night and just you know, not deal with anything. I, I just did not want to deal with anything. I didn't want to deal with at that time, you know, uh, the kids or just life. I did. I just didn't want to deal with life. I was just not happy at all.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's like it's not like you can blame it on any one thing, right? Like you can't blame no. it on being alcoholic you can't blame it on. I hated my job, and you know, no, I. it was like, a lot
1: you know. of things. It it was a lot. It was a whole lifestyle of stuff. You know, I, like I said, my father died. It was the, you know, the, the aspects of the job, the things that I saw that affected me, you know, some childhood stuff. Uh, you know, it was just all this stuff. And I was an introvert. So I always kept everything inside. I, I didn't, I thought that if you went to a therapist, that that was a sign of weakness. I didn't take any medication. You know, it's amazing. And I, and I know this now, but the most complicated organ in your body. People neglect it every day. And now I am like, oh, you gotta go talk to somebody. I recommend that you go talk to somebody, which is why I'm going to school right now to get my master's degree as a social worker. That's great.
2: I love that. Well, I want to talk about that more. But I want to talk about what was happening to you when you were spiraling
0: out of well,
1: I mean, um, you know, I I mean to get down to the whole nitty-gritty with everything i mean i became very addicted to end up going to from five milligram uh oxycodones to 30 milligram roxycodones and it was what i was taking at that time plus with the drinking i i can't believe that i am alive to be able to have this conversation with you i really mean that and you know just very grateful that I can be here now to have this conversation. And well, I'm grateful too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I didn't do this, you know, I've been sober now for almost four years, July 12th will be four years. And I did not do this alone. I mean, it was my family, my friends, Uh, you know, treatment, Uh, you know, the room, AA rooms, uh, you know, it's just, there's a whole network you can't. And that's the thing is that you always think you're alone and you're not alone. You have a whole network of people that want you to succeed.
2: Well, it starts with you, though. I mean, would yes, you agree absolutely.
1: With that? Yes,
2: absolutely.
1: Yeah, because I had to end up going three times to treatment. The first time, I just was like uh, very childish, very mature. Uh, I wanted to be, you know, basically, I, I had the adult version of oppositional uh, defiant uh, disorder. And I, whatever anybody was saying at that point. So then so then I was like, all right, you know what? I got to go back because I'm going to lose my job. So I still wasn't mentally doing it for me. I was doing it because I don't want to lose my job. I was like, well, I better get back because chief's going to freaking bring me a new you know what. And then he's going to fire me. So well, I did had-
2: something happen? Because it sounds like they wanted you to go to rehab. I mean, was it a secret that you had this problem or did it? Did yeah, well, you know.
1: well, no, I mean, uh, Jen and I had a, uh, you know, a huge argument. I was, uh, which I mean, everything I did, I mean, she had every right to yell at me for. Uh, I mean, it was a complete disaster and destroying our family life. So, I mean, we had a huge argument. Uh, I was leaving and uh, she was, she didn't want me to leave because it was obvious that I was drunk. She wanted me to go kill somebody or kill. So she called the police and then it was, uh you know, the police have to obviously tell my bosses to let them know what's going on. I mean, they're, they're supposed to do that by policy, you have to do that. So they contacted my headquarters and was both if it wasn't for my friends or family. Uh, at that point, they saved my job and saved me. Because even though the first two times I didn't uh, become like sober, it was laying a foundation because at that time I didn't, I was like, I'm not going to treatment or rehab. I mean, that's where, you know, heroin addicts and bad people go.
2: That's not me.
1: That's not, me. I'm
2: not one of them.
1: I'm not them. Exactly. Exactly. Until I got there. And then I realized there were doctors, there were lawyers. There was a, there was a sheriff's officer that was there. And I was like, wow, And it was like that whole thinking changed where I was like, this is, you know, there's no discriminating with addiction at anybody can have it. And I realized, I mean, you know, there was a doctor and and an attorney that were like high profile, big wigs. Like, you know, you call those power attorneys, like the guys, he literally lives. And I talked to him all the time still but he lives two houses away from Derek Jeter's house that Tom Brady's staying at, you know, he lives on that same Island. I mean, he's got that kind of money. I mean, but he is an alcoholic and then, and it just goes to shower.
2: Yeah. It so, doesn't discriminate. It but I've talked to me about what your, your mindset, you know, because I know this is the way I imagine it happens is you do start to recognize at some point in time yes. that, My drinking is causing a lot of problems. But you still want to be able to do it. So you start thinking, well, maybe I can just do it on a weekend.
1: Just drink some wine or beer. I'll leave the liquor out. Yes. I've done that a hundred times. As a matter of fact, every alcoholic has done that. They call it actually research and development. Really? In terms of the room. Yes. Like if they go out and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to try like a just have a couple glasses of wine at dinner. Yeah. Or just going to have a beer or two. No big deal. I can't do that. I can't do any of that. I can't even, uh, I wouldn't even have a, um, you know, those non-alcoholic ones. Uh Yeah. I mean, I just know for me, I know for me, it's just, it's, you're going down a slippery slope. It's just,
2: yeah, Yeah. I I just
1: know I can't, I I can't.
2: there are people that um, will say that like, Oh, I, I, well, there seems to be two schools of thought. There's the people that say, well, I can be cured at some point and then I can drink like a normal person Mm -hmm. or no, I, I can never drink again.
1: Yeah. That's me. Okay. I can't do anything ever again. I don't necessarily
2: believe the first one exists. I think. Which one's that? I don't believe that if you're an alcoholic, I don't believe you can drink at all.
1: No, if you're an alcoholic, you should not drink at all. Absolutely. You can't do anything. I mean, I've heard everything, you know, marijuana maintenance program. I've had a lot of friends try that, and they end up going right back to drinking and using. And, uh, you know, there's friends of mine right now. I mean, they're suffering right now. I mean, I have a a big network of people that, uh, that I talk to, and you'd be surprised. Like, I would say out of 40 people that I communicate with, From getting to know them, whether it's in the AA room or NA room or from treatment, I still communicate with them. A lot of times they call me up because they want to know how is it working? how How is, you know, am I still sober? Especially with everything that was going on in my life for the past, you know, couple of years. And I just tell them, I mean, you got to stick with the program. There's a program, there's a process, and you have to stick with it. This is like I said. This is a this is a family unit. You can't do this alone. The second you do this alone or you deviate, it's going to get you.
2: Um, I'm sure that you've done a lot of reading and learning about yeah. the nature of addiction. I have because I have um, addicts in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a little different when you're focusing on other people as opposed to your yourself, your, yes. your own affliction. And I have read that when an alcoholic has a drink mm-hmm. they have a very different experience than when an al- someone who's not an alcoholic has a drink so like if you and I went out for a drink which we'll never do again but if we did you know i'll have a drink and whatever you know i might feel good but you're having a completely different experience it's and i've an ex- heard it's because of brain chemistry
1: it is it's absolutely it's it, you know uh, i don't know the exact year i don't remember um, hopefully none of my professors are listening, will listen to this, but yeah, I mean, there, there was a, obviously, there was a time where they, you know, they diagnosed substance abuse disorder as a disease. And so, yeah, of course, I mean, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm in uh, Rutgers School of Social Work. I'm hoping to get into what's called the ACTS program. It's uh, addiction counseling training. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, I read a lot of stuff on addiction, more importantly, for myself, but also to help people. And for me, if I was to go out drinking, I would go, say if you and I were to go out somewhere, we'll go to dinner, you didn't know anything about my past, and I go, and we have a glass of wine, I guarantee you that I will start to think of I got to get to a liquor store now before 12 o'clock because the liquor store is going to close. You know exactly what liquor store. I actually had a guy who I got to know him so well because his house was attached to the liquor store that I would honk my horn at two, three in the morning. And he wouldn't even, he would just hand the bottle right out his bedroom window and I'd give him the money. It was like, it was like a transaction. That's wow. how bad I was. Yeah, that's how bad I was.
0: You had a hookup.
1: I had a hookup. That was he was my dealer. <laughs> like you were saying, we would go out, and have a couple of glasses of wine. I would never let you know. And well, i then was kind of, of feeling home. like a
2: little bit of an idiot that all the time I spent with you that it's never I didn't see it.
1: No, you you're not an idiot, and neither was anybody that was around me. My family or friends. Um, I just was very good at hiding it. I really was. Obviously. And you know what? And and that's one of the things that I am going to, you know, be involved with is to, I'm going to talk about the signs that people like yourself, and my friends and my family, they missed, but there were a lot of signs. And, you know, you just, a lot of people were like, I can't even tell you, like even my own family and, and Jen's family, everybody was like, dude, I, I had no clue that you were dealing with this.
2: Well, I remember when you and I did um sort of reconnect and we were talking more and it was right before you got divorced mm-hmm. and then when you were getting divorced. Um because I handled your divorce yes. and I remember thinking and I even said this to you like you know Tammy, when I knew you, you were so together, you really had your shit together. You were professional and I remember you were, you know, you always talked about saving your money and, you know, paying off debt, and and you just seemed like you were really together and you and you were responsible. And I was like, what the hell happened to you?
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. And you know what the funny thing is, is that a lot of people look at the house on the outside and see how beautiful it is, yet it's a complete disaster inside. And that's what my life was. My life was basically, I had a wonderful landscaped house. But inside was a complete disaster. It looked like a, you know, and I, when I'm referring to that, I'm referring to my head. You know, yeah, I, I put on a good front. I was always I mean, people always used to tell me at work, Danny, it's always nice seeing you come in smiling, you make my day. Uh, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, you would come in and your smile got me through the last hour. Uh, but
2: you were always fun. I, I remember that about. Yeah, you don't you remember you having grumpy days, you know, or maybe yeah. your version of grumpy was was still pretty pleasant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really did try to do my best to um, always stay happy. I felt like I didn't want to put uh, anybody out of their way to worry about me. Like, I, I just, I, I didn't want my problems to be anybody else's problems. If anything, I was handling other people's problems and taking on other people's problems. Meanwhile, I had my uh, issues that were being unattended to
0: yeah. by my
1: own, by my own doing.
2: Did you ever drink at work? Yes. You did. Yeah. Can you get in trouble for that now? <laughs> we should I should have gotten in trouble
1: there. I mean, look, I mean, it was. Yes. I mean, I'm not proud to say, but to be perfectly honest, yeah, I did. Um, it wasn't anything where like I was guzzling a liter, but because I got to such a bad point in my life with withdrawals, I would have to take a little bit. Like I would have a Gatorade bottle with just a little bit in like a Gatorade bottle. And I would have to take a little bit like it would be probably a shot. I would say a night, but yeah, I was under the influence.
2: Did anybody ever suspect or say anything? I'm
1: sure they did. It's That's that whole thing. It's a very, very touchy uh, situation. I, I know guys knew. I just knew they knew. And I, and I ended up finding out later that they knew because they came to me after I, you know, got back and things were great and, you know, been sober since, uh, you know, July 12th, 2017. That's when I went to the last treatment center. But, um, yeah, they, they eventually said, you know, dude, I knew, you know, something was off with you and I could smell it on you or whatever. Uh, but, I mean, it's a very, very dangerous situation. And there were a lot I've been throughout my career. I wasn't the only one that's done that. There's been many times starting from when I first started to when I was just ended. There's a lot of cops that do that. And it's it's very scary and of course, you know, the public's trust is, and, uh, you know, they're, they're just like a doctor. Would you want a doctor to operate on you being drunk or under the influence? Would you want a cop holding a gun
2: Yeah, under the
1: influence? You know? So yeah, but, uh, unfortunately the addiction, uh, I was not concerned about my job. Obviously I was more or less concerned about I had to keep myself from going through the withdrawals. Is it a pain? Yeah. yeah.
2: You, uh, alcohol withdrawal is actually really dangerous. I don't, a lot of people don't know that.
1: Yeah. A lot of people don't know that, uh, you know, you have uh, your benzos like Xanax. Anyone that comes off of, uh, you know, alcohol, that will withdraw from alcohol or your benzos, or, you know, your Xanax or whatever, they will, you uh, they should go to a detox because you could have a heart attack and die.
2: Yeah, yeah, you can. You can die from that. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So when did you start to have this feeling like, like when did you internally say, Danny,
0: you gotta get clean?
1: You know, I mean it was, uh man, my I would say when I saw my daughter crying and having panic attacks and it really broke my heart. And I mean, she's got these, you know, big blue eyes and, you know, she came to me and she said, you know, daddy, I want you to stop. And my God, it broke my heart. <laughs> I'm going to start getting emotional now again. But, um, but yeah, I, it, and I realized at that point that, you know, this is, uh this is something I have to do for my family, for me.
2: How old was she then?
1: Oh, let's see. So She was about six or seven.
2: Do you think that now that you're more self-aware, do you think that, do you think it had anything to do with you maybe not respecting yourself, like feeling good about yourself?
1: But without a doubt, I had major depression and anxiety. and. I wasn't taking care of myself i mean like i said the most complicated organ in our body i was neglecting and you know there was there's chemicals there's hormones there's all type of dopamine there's, there's uh you know everything going on in your prefrontal cortex is just you have a lot of stuff going on and i wasn't taking care of it and had i known or actually you know respected the advice of what people told me to go talk to a therapist and maybe you need medication. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten that bad. Or maybe I would have prevented it years ago. I mean, Jen used to tell me all the time, you need to see somebody, you got to talk about these things and maybe you need to see, but I really thought like, no, I'm a police officer. Uh, you know, we're not supposed to have that weakness show that weakness or I'm not weak, you know, I got this.
2: Well something I remember about you that we had talked about a long time ago was you were young when your father died yes. and did you feel like a lot of responsibility like like I have to be the man of the house now
1: yeah and you know it's I'm glad you brought that up because you know for the longest time I had all this pressure on me and I was never like I mean I had a childhood but that from like 13 till about 18 20, I would say, uh, well, no, about 21, you know, about the time when I finally was like moving out, I felt like I had all the responsibility of the world, but I put this on myself. It wasn't like my mother said, Hey, I want you to be the father of the house. She never said anything like that. I took on that role. And by taking on that role, I put a lot of pressure. I, I mean, my brother and sister probably hated me at that point in my life because I was treating them like a child and like I was their father, but I had all this pressure on me. And, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, I didn't see anybody. I didn't talk about it. I just,
2: well, did, was that pressure did, that you put on yourself or was there something subtle? if you want to talk about it, that you feel like your mom did to kind of put you in that role.
1: Yeah, well, see, probably around the time when we were having these conversations, I was blaming my mother at that time. But after the last treatment place that I was at and my therapist, who was unbelievable, we were able to process that. And just layer by layer, I got to where I was able to realize my mother actually never said to me, Danny, you're the man of the house. Now you have to take on all this. No, I I took it upon myself and did this. And what happened was, and which led to things going on down the road with other people is I never set barriers. I never said no, if somebody needed something, I always said yes, even though I knew that It was interrupting my life or my schedule or it was going to be too much for me to handle, I still, I couldn't say no to people. So I felt like I would let them down. It would be something simple like, hey, listen, man, I need some help with uh, cutting trees down or, you know, my my plumbing's messed up or, you know, just whatever. I need to, you know, hand around the house or the car or whatever. I never said no to anybody. So eventually i finally learned that i had to set boundaries and i had to think about me and my health you know i have crohn's disease and everything so that was another thing that was uh a factor in my depression too
2: yeah we didn't even talk about that you've had a lot going on danny
1: yeah man' I'm a complete mess i <laughs> well, me tell got, you something.
2: gotten through everything
1: <laughs> no we haven't we No, and you know, and I just want to say, yeah, I I I do have problems, but you know, looking back at what I have compared to what a lot of other people have, I'm very grateful for where I'm at right now. I really am. Even though I'm completely broke, I'm 45, limited at my mother's house right now, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm the happiest broke guy out there in the world. I really am. Um, This is not going to be my legacy, but you
2: still got a long way to go. You're you're I got a
1: lot of years. I got a lot of good things. Yeah. I got a lot of good things coming. I got a lot of plans, but yeah. So, I mean, you know, during this time when I was, you know, drinking and taking pills and everything, I was approached about doing these compounding, uh, this compounding drug, uh, you know, uh, for pain. Through your business. Yes. I was approached by somebody. I can't mention names or anything because it's still, ongoing, even though I, you know, I, I did take a plea in the matter and I did admit to everything that I, my part. And, you know, this was during, uh, 2015 and 16. And you were
2: addicted at that time.
1: I was completely, yeah, I was full blown addicted. I was not making, I I mean, I was not making any good decisions at all. I never got in a car accident, And during that period, I think I got like five or six car accidents. Wow. Yeah. Anyone I mean no, no. No. But no, it was a lot of it was like uh, you know, going around a turn and jumping a curb and hitting the uh telephone pole or a sign or something like that. But you were drunk or high. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um yeah, so I was approached about doing this whole compounding thing. I, mean, I can't get into the whole thing still, but maybe that's another day when this is all settled. We could talk about that, the details, but it was another one of my stupid decisions. And end up coming back as of a couple of weeks ago, I took a plea, and I could be facing jail time. So, you, so
2: basically, to summarize, you got mixed up with some... Yeah. Transactions yeah. that are considered to be insurance fraud.
1: Healthcare fraud. Yes. Healthcare yes. fraud. Yep. There was, you know, like I said, there was compounding a lot of the stuff. I didn't, you know, I knew that there was some stuff I was like, all right, this really, we shouldn't really be doing this. And there was a lot of it that I really didn't realize until I ended up finding out like a few years ago when I knew I was said, oh, my God, we didn't. Like people were getting arrested for this because it was this, you know, every there was a huge uh, countrywide, uh, I guess, a scheme going on that I didn't even know about of people taking the compounding and using certain insurances. Like what I did was, you know, I would ask the guys at work if they were interested. Here is uh, a compound if you got back problems, if you want vitamins, whatever, you know. And the guys did not know, uh, like, anything behind it, that they were doing anything wrong at all. And they thought they were helping me out. And they were looking at it like, oh, you know, uh, Danny uh, is going through a tough time. I'm sure they knew that I was drinking and really in a bad spot. And he probably thought this is a great way for me to help him out. Maybe if he made some money, he'll be happy and he'll stop drinking or something. I I mean, that's the one thing I could imagine was going on in her head. So, I mean,
2: just mm -hmm. so people know, because I know you can't talk a lot of of details about that right now, but Mm -hmm. if if I could invite people to just Google you, (laughs) they'll find an article. I've done it. I've googled you, and yes, you know, there's an article
1: floating around and kind of. Yeah. No, it, you know, I'll tell you what, the, (laughs) this has been going on for a couple of years that even before I knew I was a target of an investigation, I knew that it was eventually I was going to be one. I just saw it coming. And you know, I, I just, for two years, I had stress. It was really killing my stomach with my Crohn's and everything. And it just, I had Why enough. Why no, not you and, just stop? Oh, no, it, I, was, I was done. Uh, I'm talking, you know, let me take a step back so everybody knows the date line here, the timeline. So, yeah, 2015 and 16 is when this went on. And then I didn't find out about it until, like, you know, that stuff was going down. Until 2019. So I was already well, you know, it was already several years at this point, four years.
2: Because to read the article, it sounds like you were the mastermind of this huge (laughs) healthcare fraud ring. And you made like millions of dollars. No, that's the way the article.
1: Yeah, no, it's look, I mean, first off, I did not. I mean, I'm 45 years old living at my mom's. I definitely. Uh, did not make that kind of money uh there's other people that were involved that did make um the money um i did get some money out of it in the beginning and like i said it, you know it would have to it would have to be me getting deep into the whole yeah the whole scheme but but yeah i mean uh, there was definitely i mean the, you know the, the feds they did their job they did a uh you know they were very very good with me i, I have um unbelievable amount of respect for them um i didn't like them at one point only because i knew i was at a bad spot but i didn't like them because i didn't like me i didn't like my situation but yeah they were doing their job and they did they did the right thing and um you know look i i wanted to go down as soon as i heard that i was uh you know that one of the offices was raided I was like, I got to go and talk to them. I got to tell them I'm a part of this. They, you know, they didn't even know that I was a part of it at this point.
0: They being the police,
1: uh, the FBI. Yeah.
2: Which most people are like, what are you crazy? You're not going to go <laughs> talk to the FBI. And yeah. I want to clarify something too, for the people listen to me, know this is when you are part mm-hmm. of a conspiracy, because that's mm-hmm. basically what this was. Yeah, absolutely. You're responsible. Every one of the conspirators is responsible for what the others are doing. Yes. So, if you had one little part of it,
1: yeah. well, that was the whole you're thing. So
2: responsible for all of it.
1: Every single thing. Yes, it's uh, the f the I don't want to say FBI. The the federal laws are not like the state laws, and uh, you know, it, it was just a, the situation basically was that even though I did not make, well, I, even let's say if I didn't make a dollar, mm-hmm. it was just because I was involved. I get clumped in with everything. Yeah. And everybody that's involved, that's even on a low scale.
2: So why did you feel like you needed to go talk to the FBI? Cause I know you, you even told me that your attorney had advised you against yes. that particular course of action you why know, was it important to you to do that i
1: i just i i had just this overwhelming amount of guilt i felt uh i i, I didn't sleep for two years uh, well actually i mean i i didn't sleep until i finally got it off my chest but yeah it was uh my attorney wanted me to Uh, hold off just yet because of course she has to do her job. She has to find out what's going on in the first place. And are you even a target of the investigation? And, you know, she's doing, she did a wonderful job. uh, And, but I still finally told her, look, I want to go in and I want to tell them I have to. And the reason why I did it was because this was the last thing that I could at least say, I don't think there's if there's anything else out there going on that I may have done. I really don't remember. But let's just say, for argument's sake,s this was the last thing that I was involved with that had anything to do with my past, with my addiction, and I wanted to put it to rest. And I want and, and I approached them not as a, a person admitting guilt. It wasn't just that. I actually told them on the record I wanted to do an amends. And That's how I treated it. I wanted to do amends to all the people that I affected. Uh, you know, say taxpayers, uh, just, just anybody. My my coworkers, my family, my friends. I mean, I did all individual amends, but I wanted to do like this, you know, this this big amends to everybody. Matter of fact, it might sound might sound crazy, might sound funny, but I had to do this for me. Was I even wrote Governor Murphy a letter saying that I needed to make amends with the state of New Jersey. I know did it sounds crazy. It? I did. I mailed it. I did, but I'll tell you, uh, did I, you knows, get
2: he... a response?
1: No, no, I haven't got a response, but I thought yeah. it was, yeah, he's probably like, look, look at this guy. We got COVID going on and he wants me to worry about his amends. <laughs> he probably put it right in the shredder. But anyway, you know what though? Um, it made me feel really good. And I don't see him going on five o'clock news saying, so he... I just want to make this official. This is Danny's amends for everybody. But it was the reason why I wrote him was because he is the leader of the state of New Jersey. He's the voice of for us. And he's the biggest politician. So I looked at that as, you know, by me telling him and, you know, just like us talking right now, I told you that soon as things got settled down, I wanted to do this because this is my opportunity also to say, hey, look, I affected a lot of people by the decisions I made. And look, I, you know, whatever I could do to make it up. I I really am. uh, I really want to put the past behind me and and the poor decisions I made. I'm not a bad person. I just made some really bad decisions.
2: Yeah. Well, who has a right. But I have to say, I really applaud you because so many people go through life, sometimes their entire life, And really make themselves a victim and Mm -hmm. always someone else's fault. I mean, you could blame your friend who, you know, got you involved in this or, or any number of other people who allowed this to happen. You could blame your wife. You could blame your mom. You could blame, you could blame a lot of people.
1: Yeah. I could blame everybody, but the person that really should be blaming is me
2: people do it. People do it all the time. People blame other people for their bad mistakes all the time. And I've never in the time that we've talked about this, never ever gotten the sense that you didn't take full and total responsibility for everything. Admit your wrongdoing and, and, you know, like you said, just express that you just wanted to be done with it and move forward and move on with your life.
1: Yeah. And, and you know what, honestly, like there's going to be people out there that obviously are not going to give me that acceptance of my amends or my, or forgiveness or, and I respect that I really do. I understand that there's going to be some people that it's just going to take some time or maybe it never happens, but I just wanted to at least go and offer my sincere apologies for whoever I did affect. I mean, you know, Uh, even if it's a person that's just a taxpayer and, you know, putting taxpayers money into my matter to entertain my stupidity at that moment. So, you know, that, that was really what this is, you know, uh, this was all very important, all these little things I've been doing. And it's another reason why I'm getting involved in this field of addiction is because I don't, I'm, and I, you know, it's so funny because I was thinking about what I would talk to you about. And, you know, these are one of the things I want to talk about was that, you know, when people say, if I could just, you know, help one person out there, I want to help anybody and everybody. I'm not limiting it, but I want to do it on a large scale and I'm going to. And I've been putting a lot of finances to the side to, and some money to the side to form a, a you know, once the tax season's over, my accountant's going to help me set up a nonprofit charity organization, which will help with people that are unfortunately not in great financial situation to afford to get good quality treatment or possibly maybe the first month or two rent for a sober living home. Uh, I, you know, I have, I have a couple of things I would, you know, I plan on doing. I'm going to hopefully have my own podcast. And hopefully that's what you. But yes, I was
2: going to say it's not going to be your own podcast; it's going to be our podcast.
1: I know, I know. I can't wait. I really can't wait. I think it's going to be wonderful.
2: I'm looking forward to it too. So, so spoiler alert: Danny and I are
1: talking about
2: starting a podcast and and um, getting that together. So we'll keep everybody posted on that.
1: Yeah, it's going to be very
2: forward to it, and and it is going to focus on um, addiction-related issues. Yep. That's about all we know right now.
1: Yeah, we got to put things together. You know, it's a work in progress, but I'm really, really excited about it. And I think that, you know, we'll have a lot of fun, too. Yeah,
2: I think so. We always had fun. We always had a lot of fun. And I don't want to go, like, too deep into what happened in your marriage and in in your divorce. But I I know it's part of it, right? Yeah. And I'm happy for a long time. Well.
1: One of the things, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I could actually answer the question because I know we're, you know, you've not, we've had many conversations. And, you know, that's another thing too, is getting back to that blaming. You know, I, I did blame Jen for a lot of things. And in reality, after, like I said, when you start to, when you take this disease seriously and you realize, like, the people that you heard along the way, you start to realize your wrongdoings what you, what your part was. And by me doing that, I realized what I was basically doing with Jen was I was trying to mold her into a person that I wanted and not accepting her for who she was. And I put a lot of stress and pressure on her because she wanted to obviously do everything she could to make her husband happy. But, you know, I was never happy with myself and by me not being happy with myself, I was looking for something to blame. And that's why I blamed, I blamed John. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you right now, because of me changing my attitude and realizing this, we have a wonderful relationship. I mean, we have probably the most you know the weirdest divorce ever because we're very very good friends we really are i mean you know really it was just uh, you know well, i think
2: that's the best situation to be in it's yeah,
1: better for the kids. and well absolutely and you know that's what i wanted to get to and one of the reasons why i definitely wanted to come and do this with you is because i always you know i always uh stalk you on uh your podcasts or your uh or linkedin or something but you always raise an important um, question or statement. You make an important statement. And that is, why do you stay for the kids? And, um, you know, although, you know, look, I love Jen. I'll always love Jen. She's the mother of my kids. She's a wonderful woman. She's doing very well. But, well, I mean, we we should have never got married. Well, we did. We had two beautiful kids, my son and daughter, They're amazing. And, but uh, I realized that I was staying, we were staying together for the kids and we were doing more damage by us staying together.
2: I always tell people
1: that. I know. I see you say that all the time. And I, I'm telling you from experience that that I stayed five years, probably, you know, when I say I stayed, I mean, you know, we, we stayed married five years longer than what we should have. And the reason why we did that was because we, we were thinking we were doing something to help the kids. Meanwhile, my daughter was developing panic attacks. My son completely isolated and shut down. After I finally got my, you know what, together.
2: You can curse on here.
1: I'll try to be a gentleman. Shit. Um, so I finally got that together. And I mean, my daughter, I, I, I can't, Uh, And my son now, I I can't even, I can't even get up from the couch without them tackling me and hugging me. And, you know, I love you, daddy. You know, I, I miss you. You know, when I come to see them, it picked them up for, you know, either Jen and I, we share the every four days and it's just amazing. By just a little bit of a a attitude change and these adjustments, the people that you affect it's, I don't want to take that away from them. So,
2: yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I remember when you were unhappy and Mm -hmm. I I think I probably did say things to you like that, that if you were, you know, if you were staying for the kids that you might consider that it's actually more damaging to them to, for them to observe a dysfunctional relationship.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of the conversations I had about my marriage too was me really painting a picture that really never existed.
2: Maybe, maybe, because I do remember at times saying to you, well, you know, it can't be all it can't be all her.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You're part of it, too. (laughs) No, I was perfect.
2: But but you you were a different person at that time. You, You were you know, you had a a different mentality and I'm really glad that you guys get along now and
1: your friends and. Mm -hmm. No, without a doubt. I mean, I'm telling you, like just the whole situation, we really look to help each other. And I I see this to couples. If you really love your kids, put aside the immaturity and the past and let it go. I I used to go on calls with domestics and I used to be like, just let it go. Who cares if she's dating or he's dating and, you know, the the girlfriend's 10 years younger and blonde or whatever. Who cares? At the end of the day, you're damaging your kids. Your kids are going to be in and out of therapy or possibly addiction. But Yeah.
2: I, you know, I think I said something to you one time. I don't know if you remember this. Which, looking back, it was either, like, brilliant or really awful that I said this to you. But I remember saying to you, do you want your daughter to end up with a guy like you?
1: Oh, God. I think I probably answered no.
2: I think you said no at this time. Um,
1: No, (laughs) definitely not.
2: You know, it wasn't like I was trying to break you up, but I wanted you to be happy.
0: And if, of course,
2: if being in the marriage wasn't what was going to make you happy and be healthy for everybody, you know, you, there's one of two things. You either need to acknowledge that and get a divorce or you need to work on it, Yeah, but be committed to working on it. Well,
1: that was it. I mean, I, you know, look, I, I did a lot of, um, you know, really messed up things. I mean, throughout my marriage. You know, I, there was, you know, I wasn't faithful. I, I was uh, drinking and then, you know, gambling. I had a very, very addictive personality. I, I have one. It's not like it goes away. I have a very addictive personality. I mean, I, I don't go to, I wouldn't even go down Atlantic City or put myself in, you know, gamb- you know, uh, it wasn't even just the gambling. It was because of the drinking that was involved with it. I related everything to drinking and I had to stop doing these things for a while because i didn't trust myself and the best way for me to handle that was to stay away the whole people places and things you know that's the word. that's the yeah they use in in you know treatment and and just in general you could use that with anybody with anything whether you have an addiction or not just you know the people you choose to hang out with the places you go to hang out with and the things you choose i mean really i mean I never raised my hand and said, I'm going to grow up and be an addict, alcoholic, and possibly go to prison for a few years. You know, I mean, that's not what I wanted to, you know, I raised my hand for.
2: Yeah. That's a good segue though. Are you going to get jail time?
1: I don't know. I I really don't know. I mean, it it is a possibility. And um, the best day was a couple of weeks ago when I finally took my plate because I was able to finally put this whole thing to rest. And a big chunk of weight came off. Now, as far as the sentencing, and if I do get jail, I'm okay with it. I really am. I mean, do I want to go to jail? No, I don't want to go to jail. Who who wants to go to jail? But um, if I do, I, I mean, I've already mentally accepted that. That it's a possibility, and I have to do what I have to do. I mean, look, I I still, at the end of the day, did what I did, and if the judge feels as though, um, you know, it warrants it, then that's what is going to end up happening. And who knows? Hopefully, I get to go where Martha Stewart went.
2: <laughs> well, you already know what it's like, right?
1: Yeah, I guess I do. I never thought that I'd be on that side of the bars, but hey, you oh, know yeah, what? No, really. And and you know, uh, the point I want to make about it is that you. You see where you know alcohol and, and drugs and you know any sort of addiction itself can get you in a lot of trouble. It can,
2: but don't you think the addiction is really not the problem? It's a symptom of something. What's that? Do you feel like the addiction is a symptom of something bigger? It's well, not the problem, it's a symptom.
1: Well, no, exactly. You know, I've always mentioned this to. Whenever I would talk to somebody that was dealing with, you know, I I get calls all the time now, people, you know, I I mean, I made it very known at headquarters and I get some of the cops call me up still and say, can you talk to this one or that one for me, Uh, friends and family. So the first thing I always ask is, um, ask yourself, uh, what is the pain? What is your pain? Not what's the addiction? I know that you're addicted to something, but what is your pain? That's what you really got to ask yourself. Why are you doing this to yourself? Uh, So what's your, what's your, why, what's your, you know, that's what you have to figure out is what is your why pertaining to the addiction? Why are you What was yours? Well, I mean, it was just, um, a lot of it was just, I was not happy with, my current life. That was, I just wasn't happy with me. And instead of like, like, say even a job, um, yeah, I felt stuck because I was like, well, I mean, like this is a great career. Say what you want, but it's a wonderful career. It's a professional career. Uh, it's an honorable, uh, position being, um, you know, the, the, besides the benefits of pension and all that, I didn't want to lose any of that stuff. And instead of going and calling it quits, which I should have and start a whole new career. um, I felt like I was going to let everyone down if I quit. Like my family would have said like, why did you quit? You had such a great job. Like, why would you do that? And so then, a lot of
2: it's caring too much what other people think.
1: Yeah, that that was a that played a major role was me worrying about um, what the guys think that I was you know weak, uh, you know, you know. There's another word out there it starts with a P, but I'm not <laughs> going to go. I, I to be a gentleman, but no, I mean in reality though, it, that really did play in my head. I, I wanted to leave many times, and that's why when that uh, when I was denied my disability, I was like. I really went south with it was because I didn't have that excuse to say, well, I'll walk my neck was hurt and my back was hurt. But in reality, what it really was is I just did not like being in this job because I couldn't handle it anymore mentally. I just could not handle it. And I and listen, there's it takes a special person to be able to do this career, really does. And I basically forced myself to do it were almost 20 well a little over 22 years.
2: I mean and I hope you don't look at yourself like a failure in any no, way. I mean you did no. it for a long time.
1: No, like I said, I I I loved aspects of the job. I really loved helping kids out. Um you know, helping families out and and getting involved with turning somebody to, you know, take the right path. Those things I loved. I really did. But when it came to anything related to blood and gore, no, I was not good with that stuff. Yeah. I had a, I'll tell this one story. I mean, it's very sad, but this guy tried to cut his head off with a circular saw. And I remember. He wasn't
2: successful?
1: No, he wasn't. He, I didn't need to, like, I don't know, like. Couple hundred stitches and everything. He you know, lived. He well, I, he lived at that moment. I don't know if anything ever happened to me after that. I, you know, I hope everything's going well with the guy. But yeah, he he tried to, you know, you know the ones that come down, you know, he cuts yeah, the that's... wood. They call it a chop saw. But yeah, yeah he put his and what happened was, I guess obviously when as soon as you start, like he tried to cut his neck, and the sensation, whatever, it, it like sliced down his face. <laughs> oh, I, I hope that you get probably like half your, um, your, uh, audience is probably like throwing up right now. That's um,
2: incredible to me that someone tried to do that.
1: I actually, one of the guys came on scene and I had to, I was, I almost fainted because it was like a 95, hundred degree day, with, you know, you got your vest on and all that stuff. And after you know, the guy was taken away. I, I had to like take half my clothes off in the car, like my shirt and my vest and all that stuff and let the cold air hit me because it was really bad. It was really bad. It, you know, it's it just, you know, just all that stuff. I was so what
2: happened? Did someone find him and call 911?
1: No, he called him. He actually called himself. Yeah. He said, I tried to kill myself and um, I'm bleeding all over the place. Something like that. I, it came in.
2: Just imagine the amount of mental anguish someone must be in to do that to themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, uh, it's very unfortunate, but I mean, I've had, uh, you know, a couple of people, a couple of, you know, friends and coworkers kill themselves. And, you know, one of them in particular, I was very good friends with, and you would never know, like how you said, I didn't know you were going through all this pain and all this stuff. We same thing with him. We never know.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, no one's gonna talk about it. And I, I always um I, I'm always taken aback a little bit when people say that suicide is a really selfish act. I suppose you could look at it that way, but I really believe that unless you've ever been suicidal, and I'm not saying I've been suicidal, but I think that you can't even comprehend no, can't. what that person is feeling where they are so depressed or, you know, afflicted in some way that they they actually want to end their lives and they actually do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are the ones that are absolutely committed and really do it. There is also the other side of the coin where they feel as though they would help their family by this, their family would be a lot happier with them gone. And that's, that's also something that, you know, there's a lot of cops that deal with that every day. And they sit back and they fight with themselves. I mean, I, there was times I thought about taking my own life. It was. And well, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad I didn't either.
2: <laughs> well, I have a coach who says that, you know, whatever bad things happen in your life, there's, there is a gift in it. Mm-hmm. You just have to figure out what it is.
1: That's it. Yeah. Well, that's it. There's, um, there's two things that affect the, I mean, there's two things that happen in a person's life. One, they're born. And two. figure out why so once you figure figure out why i hope so i mean my why i think is just really going to be that i had to go through all this pain so that i can help other people and that's what i'm going to do i can't see any bad coming out of it you know i i just really genuinely am happy to get involved with this and now that my case is uh you know pretty much settled i mean You know, I still got some things that I have to handle with it, but, you know, one way or the other, regardless, and, you know, I got to find out if I'm able to still have a license or not. But no matter what, even if I can't have a license and be an actual therapist or a social worker, I'm still going to be heavily involved with this community and this population.
2: Well, I hope that you can have your license because I can't think of anybody better and better suited for it haven't gone through what you've been through and i'm looking forward to our podcast
1: yes i can't wait it's gonna be a lot of fun
2: yeah it will be we'll have to talk more about that and for people that are watching or listening if they just want to reach out to you and say hi or maybe they have some stuff of their own going on that they want to talk to you about how how should they reach out to you
1: well you can have my phone number and text me i really hope that i don't get any uh
2: Crazy know,
1: pants. Crazy stuff, but no, my phone number is 609-235-8586. If you or somebody you know is suffering an addiction, please contact me. Absolutely. I will I I have so many resources available now. So well,
2: thank you, Danny. Thanks for being so open and honest.
1: Yeah, no, I'm so happy that I was able to do this. I'm happy to finally see you. I haven't seen you in forever, even if it is on Zoom.
2: Yeah, well, one day, I mean, COVID is responsible for a cat, not
1: you or, yes. you or me. But for one once, day soon. <laughs> for once, I'm not at fault with something.
2: Maybe we can go back to, I don't even know if it's still there. Remember Caribbean Cafe yes. to go to all the time?
1: Yes, that would be nice. You know what? I owe you a birthday present. You
2: do. And all I'm right. going to make sure that I collect on it. Don't you yes. worry. Well,
1: look, I'm retired. So just tell me when.
0: Thank you for listening to wake up, call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, ChristinaPrevitt.com. and be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to doing basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up, wake up, call the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast@gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.